0: This is Trained to Perform, the undisputed alpha podcast in training fitness and sports performance. Here, you'll develop your skills with the cold, hard facts in fitness, sports performance, recovery, and nutrition. Real, tried and true, evidence-based facts that have been proven to move you faster, move you stronger, and move you forward. Now, here's your host of Train to Perform, Julian Sisman.
1: Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Train to Perform podcast. Today, um, honestly, he's one of my mentors. Uh, I've learned a lot from Todd um, over the past few years that I've, you know, met him a few years ago. Um, Just, uh, just, so much information um and you know I still pick his brain to this day um as you can see from this um from this podcast you're going to get a lot of information a lot of great information um especially for those of you that are having a hard time with weight loss and fat loss we really we really dive deep into the you know weight loss industry um and really try to you know Provide you guys, again, with the reason why I created this podcast with the correct information, the information that's going to give you long term success, happiness, long term health. Um, And so I I hope you guys really enjoy this. Um, And please, uh, if you enjoy this podcast and listen to the whole thing, please. Uh, rate it, give me rating, please appreciate it. Um, and um, pass this along to anybody else that you may find um, this to be helpful. And here it is. Thank you. What's going on?
2: Nothing. What's going on with you? Just trying to make everything work out of here. <laughs> I hear you, man. Sucks, doesn't it? Yeah, it's... It's it's killing you?
3: Um, honestly, like, at the beginning, yeah.
1: Uh, just, uh, obviously we, you know, you can't go to the gym. So, um, just figuring out a way to, you know, move everything online for the time being, uh, was the move. Mm -hmm. Um, and fortunately, uh, I was able to get a decent amount of people moved online. Um, so just continuing kind of just like basically zoom live zoom workouts. Um, some people, have stuff they use at home. They just didn't like the lab workouts, So I was using like app based. Yeah. Um, and so I would just program them workouts and just try to like continue communication with whoever needed stuff. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I made it work. I mean, now, uh, now that, you know, Maryland and Virginia are kind of like in the same place, uh, things have kind of like changed. Um, being able to use the gym a little bit, go outside
3: and, you know, so
1: just making it work.
2: Yeah.
3: Figuring it out.
2: Yeah, that's good. Yeah. How's everything with you? Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty hectic. Really? GW, fucking they're going crazy, man. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're like, well, it's an, it's just an enormous financial loss for them, you know, like having to cancel, um, most of the fall semester and, not having students come back and things like, you know, with a tuition driven school, our, our our commits for the fall are like down like 15 or 20% or something like that. So they're predicting that it's going to be about a $115 million loss. So they're not going to school in the fall or they're- They, they going- are, they are, but you know, we're going to be operating and I think they have to keep social distancing in place. And GW has come up with their own social distancing guidelines and their own plan that's more stringent than the district. So, you know, every student has to be masked. Um, there's going to be temperature checks going in every room and sanitation and things like that. All the every uh, every every student and every faculty and every staff is going to be tested. Um, so, you know, it's it's and then, there, you know, there's a lot of things about athletics and return to play and all that kind of stuff it's, so it's it's an enormous undertaking
3: yeah so. i'm sure it's, i'm sure it's, it's
1: almost very similar at every other university oh yeah
2: yeah everybody's going through the same thing yeah yeah i mean i've trained a few
1: kids that are going to play like sports uh we have a few kids that come um and some of them it's like they haven't even heard anything
2: yeah, I know. <laughs> like, okay. Like, a lot of schools don't know yet. Yeah, it's crazy. It's and especially when you when you're in a state where like in Texas, you know, they, they're having this resurgence of cases and, and Florida, you know, those schools may have had a plan in place and then all of a sudden, who knows, you know, within a month all that could change and they there could be another quarantine, you know. So who knows? Yeah. Maybe. The fall is just going to be. Actually, the whole next academic year is just going to be a fucking nightmare.
3: Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's. Yeah. I think it's going to be a nightmare until at least something is. So
2: there's a vaccine, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you don't know. You can't really trust. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <gonna> come out. <laughs> like something that's useful. You yeah, know?
2: Right, right. Let's crank out a vaccine. Yeah, it's like, yeah, let's crank yeah, one. Let's, up with, let's like, see how much good comes from that. It's <laughs> great. So,
1: so it, it, since you haven't been going to like, obviously the campus, like, do you, like, are you just, you know, doing kind of like your Miller method stuff or?
3: Yeah, that's all we're doing. So you can't do anything school related? Nah, I don't think so. Nope. That's crazy. Nope. I mean, how's that going? Miller method. It's
2: going, it's going good now because, you know, like, well, Steph lost her job at GW because we're not reopening the lab. So yeah, that's staying closed. So I'm going to be, well, I will be teaching full time, but I'm still not going to be going to Foggy Bottom. I'll probably just be going and going to the lab and it's not even going to be open. It's just, that's going to be my office just because GW doesn't want anybody coming to campus that doesn't have to. Right. So, um, I teach online anyway, so I'm just going to, I'll go to the Virginia campus and teach my classes online there. You know, where my, all my setup is. Yeah. Um, but that's it. So, yeah.
1: So, as I uh, kind of send you those questions, kind of um, typically how I started is to kind of like give a little background on, you know, how you got to where you are, um, especially because, you know, you're obviously a professor um, and you've been around for a while and you've kind of dabbled with, you know, a bunch of different things. Yeah. Especially mm-hmm. a couple of different schools. Um And correct, remind me like exactly where you're from,
2: Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. Allentown PA. Yeah, that's what I thought. And then you went to Penn State. Mm -hmm. I did my undergrad at Penn State, my PhD at Texas A&M. Well, I was in the Coast Guard for four years first. Okay. Where, where'd you do your master's in between or was it like a common? I didn't do a master's. So, so I, I, I did my, my undergrad at Penn State. I started in a master's program at Texas A&M. Okay. But then I just switched right into a doctoral program. So I just went straight through. So I have a, I have an undergraduate degree and a PhD. I don't have any masters.
3: Mm. Yeah, that's cool. So when you
1: were at uh Texas A&M like you know, what was your dissertation on? Like what what did you like
2: you know? I I was in a I was a GA with the athletic department for 6 years, but okay. While I was doing that, I was also working in the lab of Michael Delp, who was a NASA-funded researcher. So I was doing NASA research as my dissertation. So my dissertation work wasn't performance-related. I essentially was looking at um, how intramuscular connective tissue atrophies and disuse atrophy with long-term space travel. So um, yeah, I was basically looking at exercise countermeasures to prevent cardiovascular and musculoskeletal atrophy with microgravity
3: uh
1: that's, that's pretty sweet so basically like what what would happen to you or happen to somebody when they go in space and like how long it takes to
3: atrophy or
2: yeah so 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 um it's pretty well known that when you go to space mm-hmm. There's muscular atrophy and bone loss, and it's mainly in the, mus- the the ambulatory muscles or the weight-bearing muscles on Earth. So you know, when you're walking around at Earth, if you're 200 pounds, your legs are constantly carrying around 200 pounds, or at least your yeah. upper half. So you know that constant loading at 1G is, is, a, is a it might not seem like it's, like it's a resistance training protocol, yeah. but it really is, right? You're yeah. just really used to it. Well, when you go to microgravity or when, you, when you're traveling through space and you're actually at zero G, like if you're on the space station or something like that, when you're at zero G, you've now unloaded those legs. There's no reason to have that muscle. There's no reason to have that bone mass, yeah. right? Because I want to get from one end of the shuttle, the other, I just push against the wall with my hand and I <laughs> float to the other side, right? So, you know, having all that muscle mass, there's no need for it. So you lose it. And, and, But you lose it mainly in the weight-bearing limb. So your arms won't get smaller because your arms aren't loaded at 1G. Your your legs are loaded at 1G. So when you go to microgravity, that's where you have those losses. So, So, you know, the problem with that is not, that's not so much a problem. That's a beautiful adaptation to microgravity. The problem is when you come back to Earth or some other gravitational environment. So, you know, the major problem here is with Mars exploration you know, you leave the earth's gravitational pull and then you're in micrograv, you're in zero gravity until you get to Mars. And who knows that trip is what a year and a half or something like that. So then, you know, you, you get to, to Mars and now you're at something like, I think it's 30% gravity or something like that. So now if you're at 30% gravity and you're putting on a space suit, you know, and you jump out of the space shuttle or jump out of the capsule and fall and break your leg because it's all weak. Yeah. Now you're laying on Mars with a broken leg, you know, you're pretty much you're screwed at that point, yeah. in fact, right? You're not coming back. So um that that's that's the main problem with with uh long term space travel. It's not so much of the microgravity, it's the return to a gravitational environment after being exposed to zero G for so long.
1: When they come back though, is there some type of like you have to go to like a certain place to kind of do rehab, right?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, when you, when you come back, there's, they, they do put you through various tests, the 10-minute stand test, where you basically see if you can stand. And, and the major problem is hydrostatic, um, or I'm sorry, orthostatic intolerance. Where you, you can't stand because of low blood pressure, because of pooling in the limbs and things like that. Um, but muscle is very plastic. It comes back really fast. It's really the bone loss is what, what takes much, much longer to recover, if it recovers at all. So that's, that's one of the major issues. Muscle's not that much of a big deal. It just comes right back.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, wow, that's, that's pretty crazy. So they can, they can lose significant bone. Oh,
3: yeah. Wow. And, yeah. It, so, I mean, obviously, it take what?
1: 1% I,
2: per month or yeah. something like that. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. And it, it depends on how much you have to begin with. I think, you know, the lighter you are, the, the less you'll lose. Okay. Because you're less loaded. Yeah. At one G, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So so and there, it's interesting because there's a lot of NASA has to be very creative about when you're talking about long-term space travel because it's all resources. You have to have to take everything, or you yeah. have to be able to create it while you're there. So, you know, they they examine everything. And women, I think, because of the protective effects of estrogen and things like that, women lose less bone in space than men do. Mm-hmm. Um or at least that used to be from the research that I remember. So, you know, if that would be the case, then women would be better candidates for long-term space travel.
3: Yeah, that
1: makes sense. So once you finished there, what what did you, where, did you go straight to DW or was there like an in-between? Uh...
2: When I left when I left Texas A&M, um, I went to the University of Pennsylvania and I worked in the Department of Microbiology. And one of the things that I got interested in when I was doing the NASA research was really, how does, and this this relates to training, how does the mechanical signal of, say, lifting a weight, for example, if I pick up a dumbbell and lift that weight, how does the mechanical signal of lifting that weight ultimately go into a, a muscle cell and tell that cell to change its protein synthesis or something like that? So that whole process is called mechanotransduction. Okay. So. And mechanotransduction really relates to any sort of mechanical interface between a cell and something else. So, um, when I was at University of Pennsylvania, basically what I studied was integrin-mediated uh, interactions between cells and connective tissue. So, in other words, you know, you have you have a muscle that's surrounded by collagen. The muscle is held together by connective tissue. Mm-hmm. So, what I would study would be how does a mechanical signal go through that connective tissue and ultimately get into the muscle cell to tell that muscle cell to adapt so and, and specifically when i when i did my dissertation dissert, dissertation research what i looked at was how intramuscular connective tissue specifically atrophies or deteriorates with microgravity and how does that affect cell signaling to muscle so i sort of did the, the not quite the same kind of thing at the university of pennsylvania But I essentially studied cell-to-matrix interactions in breast cancer. So that's what I did there. And then after I left, um, and then 9-11 happened. When 9-11 happened, I was in a a microbiology lab in Philadelphia when 9-11 happened. And then everybody was switching over to anthrax research and all that kind of stuff. So that's when I got out of there. And um, I took a job at East Stroudsburg University in Pennsylvania. And I was only there for like three years before, then I went to GW. So in 2005, I came to GW.
1: Okay, sweet. So when you, uh, but obviously at GW, you, you, didn't, you didn't initially have the lab. No. Did you, so you basically created that.
2: Yeah. So when I got to GW in 2005, well, there was no under, there was no graduate major, there was no graduate degree in strength and conditioning either when I got to GW. So I created that too. So, so the first thing I did was create the graduate degree in strength and conditioning, the graduate concentration in strength and conditioning at GW, and that was residential, that was in person. And then um, in 2013, I moved out to Ashburn and yeah. opened the weight management and human performance lab. And right around that time. Um was when the masters program went online, so now the master's in strength and conditioning is online um, yeah, and I run the lab at in Ashburn, which as I said, is likely not going to remain open at least not for this year
3: yeah yeah yeah, I mean that place
2: is crazy
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so honestly like i've uh i've been obviously i'm i just got i finished my master's i'm actually starting my doctorate in august oh yeah congratulations at at uh rocky Mountain University. Mm-hmm. um but honestly, your lab is like the only lab i've like ever like like been in like that because most of the class like was for my masters online so mm-hmm. um you know anything that i had to you know utilize or whatever it was just like you know, where I was, um, or this f- research and just kind of like learning about it. Um, especially cause like we, there was like a class I took on, uh, like technology, you know, mm-hmm. all this, you know, GPS and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so obviously I didn't have that stuff. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the lab is, I'm. I, I would, I would hate to see it go cause it's yeah,
2: <laughs> it's, I know. It's a great place it's
1: a great no i mean there's there's not that many around here like that
2: no there really isn't and and, you know there are there are labs that there are some universities you know places that have the equipment but it's not available to the public no you know so you you can't even get in a room yeah so yeah it is nice to have those facilities Mm -hmm. um yeah so, yeah, I mean, and mainly just we haven't talked about what we do there, but mainly that's um, uh, metabolism testing, um, a lactate threshold testing, VO2 max testing, all kinds of exercise performance testing, all that kind of stuff. Yeah.
1: So, do you, I mean, when I first went there uh, a few years ago, it was mostly like a, like aerobic and anaerobic testing. So, you had the bite, you had the VO2. Mm-hmm. We had uh, RMR testing the body, uh, Dexa. Mm-hmm. Are you, did you add in some strength stuff? Cause I know one time I went there, you had like
2: plates. We do. We have, we have three platforms. Um, we, have you know, three sets of Olympic plates. We have, um, a couple of rogue, uh, power racks. We have a full power lift, um, rack, um, with a full set of weights. So there's, there's, there's lifting equipment there as well. Yeah.
1: We're using, so kind of going on to the next thing. So now I know you developed Miller method at the same time. Um, Obviously you're probably using the lab as like an assessment center to help people.
3: Correct me if I'm wrong.
2: Yeah. So the lab, the the main function of the lab was to provide public testing um, and weight loss programming, fat loss strategies using Metabolism metabolism testing and Dexa, and those other types of technologies that are really generally have been reserved for research type settings. Yeah. So we we our philosophy is that those technologies are available enough and cost effective enough that they really should be used as part of the standard of care for weight management, and a lot of people. Balk at that saying, you know, you can't expect that everybody who wants to lose weight to get a metabolism test. And to that, I say, yes, I do have that expectation. Because if we can expect everybody to get on a scale, which is a silly thing in my mind to do, then why doesn't it make sense to have to get to expect everybody to get a metabolism test? So I know people are going to say, well, they can't afford it and things like that. And usually those responses come from people who aren't really aware of how available it really
3: is. Yeah. I mean, I mean,
1: even, at, even when I was coming to you, obviously there was not much around. And I know I had asked you a question like years ago about it and you said some, some company was going to come
3: start some, some type of uh, like uh, like testing that you could bring to the air, that was going to
1: come to the area. But then recently I, I looked up a place and they have a place in Bethesda. It's called Composition ID. Mm-hmm. And they do the same exact stuff you do there. And yeah, they've been
2: around a long time.
1: It's equally as a it's equally cost of cost wise like yeah. you're doing. And mm-hmm. you know, I tell all the people that I work with, I'm like, you know, these. If you really want real, like hardcore results, like get these two tests first, see where you have need to start, and then use those to like, especially because you know. And I talked to Stephanie about this. It's like people all all their all they worry about is like, you know, eating. Like, oh, I got this. I can't do this. I can't do that. I'm like, the reason you don't know how many calories you can eat or what you need to eat to perform at a high level, especially if you're an athlete, is because you're going to use some app that's mm-hmm. so inaccurate because it's using such a like weird equation that's like. To uh, me and you, we know that it's like, they even say that it's not like the most accurate. Um, and I tell them, I'm like, look, like these two tests, it only have to do it like once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. You know, the game changer
2: in where you want to be. Um, so. Hey, I, Julian, you know, can I share my screen? Yeah. yeah. I want to show you something on this topic. Um. Let me see. Uh, you have to allow me to share it. You have to, you, you disabled it, so you have to allow me to share it. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how you do that. Uh, let me see here. Otherwise, I can just email you the slide and you can put it up. Are you going to edit all this when we're done? Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah.
3: yeah, I mean, you can just email it to me. I mean, hold on. So, yeah, I mean, that's – uh. did I allow you?
2: Uh, hold on. Yes, you did. Okay. Right. So here is the, for this slide basically what, what we did was and this is this is exactly what we're talking about prediction equations. You know, you said that most people determine their caloric need based on an app. So if you if you download your MyFitnessPal or Fat Secret or something like that, mm-hmm. it'll ask you to put in your height, weight, gender, age and it'll tell you this is what your predicted metabolism is. Mm-hmm. That predicted metabolism is represented on this graph by the red line, okay? So the red line is the predicted value. Um, each dot on the graph is a subject, and each number within the dot represents how far that subject's RMR, expressed as a percent, is away from the predicted value. So for example, if you look at, there's a, there's a dot up here. I don't know if you can see the mouse moving But there's a dot up here that says a 38 in it. That person has a metabolism that's 38% faster than the predicted value. And then you have people down here who have metabolism that's 19% slower, 16% slower. The thing that we want people to pay attention to is look how many of those values actually fall on the red line, right? Yeah. Very few of them actually fall on the red line. So when we say, when people say, well, the prediction, the predictive equations are better than nothing. We, we, we literally say, no, they are not better than anything. Right. Right. That they aren't better than nothing. So you know, we would much rather, I would much rather talk to somebody for 10 minutes and, and give them a, a, a calorie prescription, than than then know nothing about them and have a prediction equation. Okay. Um, so th- the point is they're just not Accurate enough to trust, and we know that a 100 or 200 calorie surplus every day, you're not going to be able to lose fat. You're going to be gaining fat, right? So, you can see that by relying on these apps, you're really—it's—it's it's very much a shot in the dark as to whether you get lucky enough, mm-hmm. your RMR falls on the line, and then not only is the RMR a problem. The, the, the more I think, more important problem is that they then use an activity multiplier. Well, they say, "Well, are you sedentary? Are you moderately active? Are you highly active?" That activity multiplier then just multiplies the error that's found in the, in the in the in the in the metabolism prediction. Right. So this is where the problem comes in. When you use these things, you end up almost always overfeeding the person. The person can't lose fat, and usually they gain fat. So. We just don't use them, and and we tell people, look, if, if you can't get your metabolism measured, I'm sorry, we're just not going to be able to work with you.
1: Yeah, I mean right. that's, I mean, I that's so true. I, I, I've never seen anything like this, and this is kind of shocking because even even the fact that like majority of the numbers are above the line, so that means like.
2: Right. You would think you would think that you would mistakenly be put in a deficit, but you're not because the physical activity multiplier overcompensates for it. Yeah. Right. They'll always tell you, well, you should never eat at the RMR. Don't eat at the RMR. Well, that that's crazy. I mean, if you're, if you're 500 pounds, you might have an RMR of 4,000 calories. Are you going to tell somebody they need to eat 4,000 calories? They don't need it. Their their RMR is 4,000 calories because they're 500 pounds. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. There's this, people have this thing like, well, you shouldn't eat below the RMR, but that, it's nonsense, you know? It, it's not that you, you can't eat below the RMR, you just have to make sure that the deficit's not too big. Yes. Right.
3: Yeah, because I mean, when you do the, when you do, okay, so when you do the RMR and then when you get the bod pod, like, uh, kind of
1: explain
2: like how somebody would use those numbers. So, so if you have a body composition and a metabolism test.
1: Yeah. So like I come to you and I'm like, Hey, I want the body composition test. I want the RMR test. I want to use these to, um, you know, majority people are going to ask for fat loss, right?
2: Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so here's, here's how, here's how the plan goes. Somebody comes in and you measure the body composition and there's two reasons why you measure the body composition. One, you want to know baseline where they're starting, right? You want to know how much fat they have on them because when you test them later, you need to know how much they lost or gained, right? So you need the baseline value. The second thing is we use the muscle value, the fat-free mass value we get from the DEXA scan. Mm-hmm. We use that fat-free mass value to determine what your protein intake should be. Yep. Okay? So mm-hmm. that piece, of that de- the DEXA scan gives us those two pieces of critical information. How much protein are you going to eat? And, um, and what is your baseline levels of fat and muscle? And then let's say we, 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 then we'll do a metabolism test and the metabolism test tells us calorically how much we're going to feed that person. Okay. Bare minimum. Right. Well, it's a metabolism test as, as it's not, it's not necessarily a bare minimum because some people will eat below the RMR. Some people will eat above the RMR, depending on what they tell us their lifestyle is like. Correct. Correct. Okay. So it's not a simple cut and dry formula like these prediction equations are. I mean, that's part of the problem with the prediction equations is they treat everybody the same, right? And this is why they're inaccurate. So um, once we have, once we have a, a pretty good idea on the calorie number, well, then we know how much protein they should eat based on their muscle mass. We give them a relatively low fat diet and then carbs make up the rest. Okay. And we have equations. We have Ways to do this that I'm not going to spill here, but yeah, that's where that comes from. Um, So that's how you use those two pieces of information. And then let's say that individual, and then we'll also tell people that they have to track their food. So let's say we give somebody a calorie prescription of 1750. We give them a carb, fat, and protein distribution. We don't care what they eat. We don't care how they hit those numbers. We don't care what kind of foods they eat. All we want to know is how close on average did you get to the calorie, fat, protein, um, and carb goals. How close did you get to those over time? So let's say they, they, they come in for their initial testing. We give them the, the food prescription. They go for 60 days. Then they come back and we'll give them another DEXA scan, right? So basically, from that second DEXA, we're looking at two things. Did the fat change and did the muscle change? That's really, that's really all we want to know, right? If the fat goes down, that's great. If the fat goes down and the muscle goes down, then we got a problem, right? And we'll be like, all right, why did the muscle go down? And then we'll go to the food logs. Did they hit what they were told to hit? Nine out of 10 times, if they lose muscle, they didn't hit the target, right? Um, Then we can calculate, basically, let's let's say we tell them to eat 1750 and they eat exactly 1750. And let's say over 60 days, they lost one pound of fat. Well, they're in a deficit, but that deficit's relatively small. If they only lost one pound of fat in 60 days, right? Yeah. So we'll probably give them a little, we'll probably pull a little bit more calories out of that, out of that diet, assuming that they, their hunger levels are, assuming they're satisfied and things like that. You know, if, if, you, have to, you have to give people sustainable programs. So if people are not hungry, but they're only in a hundred calorie deficit, they're still going to lose fat. It's just going to take a month to lose a pound. Yeah. But that's a good thing, right? Because that means in 12 months, you lost 12 pounds, right? Of fat. Yes. And that, then you look like a different person, right? 12 pounds of weight is nothing. You can do that in a week if you just cut carbs, right? And sweat yeah. a lot, right? But 12 pounds of fat's a very different, they're a very different animal. But you tell people you're going to lose a pound of fat in a month and all of a sudden they're like, oh, that's not good enough. That's not yeah. fast enough. And that's the problem with the weight loss industry.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, and that's why, that's exactly, and that's, the expectations from a lot of people, I think, um, and then it's it's you know, it's a sales and marketing issue that I I hate to be honest with you, because you know, it's it's always like when you when for instance like when I try to explain to people, I'm like, look, you know, you're gonna like there's two different ways of looking at weight loss and fat. Like you don't like someone like you just said, like someone can lose five five, ten pounds in a week. You just, again, like you said, you just cut carbs, sweat, and you're good. Right. But when it comes to, like, you're saying and explaining the important two numbers in a bod, uh, DEXA scan, which are the fat-free mass and the fat mass, like, if that stays the same over the course of, like, you know, like, two months, three months, like, obviously, you're not doing anything. There's, you're just, right. you know, losing water mass. right? Point, um, and, so, and that's what I try to, like, explain to people. It's, uh, it takes time to lose fat. It's, it's, ten, it's 10 times easier to put fat on than take it off.
2: Yeah. And, you know, the analogy I use is, is, you know, people often, you hear this old argument about whether diet or exercise is more important. And one of the ways I look at it is I was trying to think of a way, how do I explain this in a way to make people understand and see this? So one day I was at the gas station and I was pumping gas. Mm -hmm. and my truck was empty. And I thought to myself, I'm going to time how long it takes me to fill my tank from empty to full. And it took about two minutes. Okay. So it took about two minutes for me to fill the tank. I don't care how hard I drive that truck. I can go out there and put that thing to the floor and drive it as hard as I possibly can. I'm never going to empty that tank in two minutes. Yeah. Right. No matter how hard I drive the thing, it's going to take me hours and hours and hours to empty the tank because the vehicle is designed to be efficient, right? It's designed to be able to extract as much energy as possible from that fuel and convert it into mechanical energy. So when you think about that, and now you think about the fact that the human body is more efficient than an internal combustion engine. Yes. So now as long as as long as it's easier for you to eat calories than it is to burn them diet will always be more important than exercise right mm-hmm. so the thing to to sort of think to yourself from a weight management perspective is it's always easier to not gain fat in the first place than it is to try and lose it yeah exactly right
1: right no, i totally agree with you i mean and that and that's you know, the first conversation I, and I'm sure it's the first conversation that you have with most clients that come into you guys is, it's never really about like activity level because Ooh. I don't really care about that. Cause like, at this no. point, like, what are you, what are you intaking as far as food goes? Are you intaking anything? Cause sometimes people like just don't eat, which right. to me, sometimes I don't get, um, especially athletes. It's
2: cr- It's mind blowing. Um, and- well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I think it happens, and, and 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 in part, it's because of researchers, right? So, so here's. And I've thought about this for a long time because this is a problem that has bothered me basically for my entire career, right? <laughs> so, so we have we have the weight loss. Like, let's say you're a typical person who's. We know that that being over fat is a problem. So now we want to research that and figure what's the best way to get fat off of people. Okay, so if I do a conventional exercise study where I put somebody on a treadmill for an hour three times a week or I put somebody on a treadmill for a half hour three times a week, of course the one who runs an hour three times a week is going to be more effective, right? They've Mm -hmm. done more activity. They're going to create a greater deficit. They're going to lose more fat. Mm -hmm. So the conclusion then is if you want to lose fat, this is what that exercise prescription should look like. And this is what we've done, right? So the ACSM comes out with these guidelines that says, if you want to lose fat, you have to do greater than 250 minutes of exercise per week, you know? So they come out with these very discrete guidelines because researchers have found out that if you do X amount of activity at X intensity for X time, you're going to lose this much weight. But the problem with that is, so, so now I come to the conclusion that an hour three times a week is more effective than three times a week. Yes, okay, that mathematically we can all agree on that but let's say we give that intervention to two two groups of people and the ones who have to go for an hour quit after 3 months cuz it's just an hour three times a week it's just too damn long i just can't do it but the other group who goes half an hour with the with a least with a with a less effective workout can maintain it for a year or more mm-hmm. which is the more effective program obviously right Sure. Obviously, the one that they can do longer is going to result in more fat loss over time. That's the more effective program, but that's not how we approach weight loss research. We, we approach weight loss research as what is the most effective way to lose the most amount of weight, and often it's not even fat. It's what's the most effective way to lose the most amount of weight in the least amount of time. And the, then we, we then sort of assume then... That we'll just tell people to do that and then they'll keep fat off. We don't, as researchers, we don't consider whether or not they can actually maintain it. Yeah. Right? Right. So so here's the problem. So weight loss is really a function of three separate sort of discrete areas. It's it's dietary management, right? It's it's food, it's exercise, and it's mindset, right? So, so there's 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 exercise psychologists who study how do you get people to adhere. And they're in their own little world over here and they do their little research. Then you have people like me, exercise physiologists, who say, well, if you, if you do this much, this type of exercise at this intensity, you'll burn this fat. And they're in their little world. Then you have the nutritionists over here and say, well, you know, if you eat carbs and you watch insulin and they have, they're over here doing their thing. But the reality is an effective weight loss program is the integration and the blending of all three of those. Correct. And nobody does that well. Because the the, the weight loss industry doesn't thrive on that because that doesn't produce quick results, right? The weight loss industry thrives on not getting people to keep weight off because that kills the weight loss industry. The weight loss industry thrives on the failures of people. It Mm -hmm. thrives on the temporary successes of people where they lose a little bit of weight and then they gain it all back. Because then they'll say to themselves, hey, I tried Jenny Craig last year and I lost 10 pounds. I'm going to try Jenny Jenny Craig again because I know it works. So for them, something being effective is not losing weight and keeping it off. Something being effective is just losing weight. Yeah. Whereas our approach is completely the opposite. Our approach is what's effective is not the weight loss. What's effective is adopting the behavior that you can do for the rest of your life and ultimately optimal changes in body composition will come. Yeah. Okay, it's a very, very different way of looking at it, right?
1: No, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think the, I think the two, what exactly what you said, the two biggest things are the mindset and the food, right? I mean, really, exercise
2: doesn't have much to do with it, exactly.
1: And I think the mindset is, is, is huge. I think people, when you tell them, when you paint that quote-unquote picture, and you say, hey, you know, this is what's going to happen. You know whatever, but even realistically, you know when you even when you guys probably provide people like the calorie count and you know this and this and this like you you can't really paint a picture because you're not like gonna sit there and hold this person's hand mm. forever uh, or for the oh. whole time that you put them on this thing until you see them again in whatever you know you're gonna check right. in with them, but right. it's gonna be one of those things where is their mindset ready for this and to be honest with you, I think, uh, you know, the problem, another problem with, you know, the fitness industry and weight loss industry or whatever you want to call it is, you know, just, you know, Instagram, all these media outlets just putting the end result versus yeah. showing like, yo, this guy was working like January till they, that picture was taken in, you know, uh, whatever, June. So they don't, st- they don't tell you how long it takes you to get there. It just says, oh, look what happened. No. So 20 pounds lighter, but everyone's like, wants to be there.
3: And,
2: yeah, no- and the other thing is, you know, you look at Instagram and things like, there are people who are just, they just genetically look really, really good. Yeah. And those people could build a, a million following on, on Instagram as a fitness model without ever lifting a weight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they, they can. No, and, and, and that's what happens. You know, you get people who have decent genetics genetics they go they work out for 6 months and all of a sudden they can be on the cover of oxygen and and you know and they and they could so so then they then all of a sudden they get a million people following them on instagram and there you go you know they're, they're right there you you've sort of encapsulated the problem with with the weight loss industry today is that it's not driven it isn't driven by evidence
1: no it's definitely not and i mean and it's it's unfortunate but i think there are some some people out there Uh, that have that background like the exercise science math you know Mm. multiple degrees of it that are trying to you know put that sort of picture out there that it's not what you think it is
3: it's really like this versus this it's not like right you know you know this guy like
1: he probably has been weight training. He looks like that cuz he's probably been weight training for like 10 years, right. <laughs> And Instagram came out like 3 months ago. Like right, right. Come on. Uh so it, it's it's such a bad picture because it kind of like it hurts certain pe- certain people um, that want to really tell people like hey like this is the this is sustainable for you based on yeah. you know your body type, body composition current body composition, this is the path that is probably going to be the best for you, um, you know, based on, you know, your exercise frequency, you know, how you like to eat um, and things like that. Because, I mean, again, uh, I, I I don't tell people I'm going to give you a meal plan because no one ever uses it. Right, right. Um, and, or adhere to it. And it's, and again, like I think, in, a lot of people talk about it, um, it's all about calories in, calories out, but it's not just, you know, what the app says. It's like there's science to it. Uh, and I, I think a lot of people just still haven't believed in science enough to say, like, oh, well, me spending $200 is going to be, you know, yeah. Worth it for a, bot, a DEXA scan and an RMR.
2: Right. They'd rather spend that $200 on Weight Watchers food.
1: <laughs> exactly.
2: Not, uh, right. And lose your hands right. in four weeks. Right. They would. And then you're going to be back to square
1: one. Right. Um, right. so, um, when, but when it comes down to, I think you've mentioned this before, when it comes down to, uh, when you provide them like meal, like, or calorie intake number, yeah. uh, how much again, like. I, I, I tell this to people all the time, like how important is it? Um, let's, let's put it, let's, this is kind of a two part question. How important is like resistance training versus cardio and how important is it like to make sure that you're hitting those protein numbers, especially when you're doing like any type of resistance training, you know, like,
2: yeah, let, that's let, a two part question.
1: So like, how important is it Resistance training versus cardio. Like, okay, eating, from a
2: fat loss perspective? Yeah, from a fat loss perspective. Okay, okay. So, so that sort of goes back to what I said before. So like if you look at the traditional sort of conventional exercise research, looking at which exercise modality is more effective for fat loss,
3: mm-hmm.
2: aerobic exercise wins. Okay, okay. so like, if, you, if you look at your conventional, let's look at a 10-week aerobic exercise program versus a 10-week weight training program and look at which one results in more fat loss, it's going to be the aerobic training program, okay? But again, again, and this is where the extrapolation of that result leads to, leads to the, the failure, I think, of the weight loss prescription, right? Because we, we, it, when it's a natural sort of decision-making process, right? I, I do this study and I see that aerobic exercise is as more effective than resistance training So then let's make a a prescription based on aerobic exercise as the primary form of exercise, right? Well, there are some problems with that. And we know that when you give people aerobic exercise um, prescriptions, they really are, are, are... even though they're more effective than than resistance training programs, they're still terribly ineffective for fat loss, right? They don't, they just generally don't lead to very big changes in body composition without a dietary intervention, right? The other thing is when you look at some of the adaption adaptations that happen as a result of aerobic training, one of those is a potential loss in muscle because. Anytime you do an activity, the body wants to adapt to that activity by making it easier the next time you do it, right? So, if I'm running down the road doing cardio, the way to make that easier is to make me lighter. Because the lighter I am, the fewer calories I'll burn running down the road, the lower my cardiac output has to be, blah, 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 right? So, Problem is the body doesn't care whether you lose fat or muscle. It just wants to make you lighter, especially upper body muscle. If I'm, if I'm a runner, why do I need upper body musculature? I don't, right? Nope. But, but muscle is the metabolic engine that burns fat, right? So I don't want to do an exercise intervention that's going to cause me to lose muscle. Yeah. Right? So, so again, this is why I look at it as, okay, yeah, in the short term, the aerobic exercise program might be more effective for fat loss. Let's look at it over two or three years. Yeah. Right? So at the end of a two or three year period, who is gonna first of all, who is gonna stick to the program more? Somebody who does resistance training or somebody does cardio? Well, it really depends on what you like, but I will tell you in in my experience working in this industry for the past however many years it's been, people complain a hell of a lot more about cardio than they do about weight training. (laughs) They just do. Oh, you're they do I hate cardio. They they just hate it, it. So so the question is again, if you're not going to do it, is, is, it a, is it a good prescription? Yeah, I, I don't think so. So the other thing is I want somebody to do an exercise program that is going to result in increases in muscle mass always, Correct. right? Because muscle is so important for glucose control, for calorie burn, you know, for, for every marker of health skeletal muscle is critically important. So why do I want to do an exercise intervention that gets rid of it? I, I, I don't understand it, right? So I just think that, and again, what the way you still need to create a calorie deficit. So the question then becomes, how do you create a calorie deficit when you're not doing cardio? Well, you shouldn't be using exercise to create the deficit anyway. You should be using diet to create the deficit, right? So the way we look at it is, if you do weight training and you break down a lot of muscle, that muscle has to repair. And that repair process elevates the resting metabolism. And if you, if you train correctly using conventional high-volume type bodybuilding type workouts, you can elevate the metabolism for by 20 to 30% for up to 48 hours after that workout. So you know, if you have an RMR of 1,500 and you can elevate that by 30%, you know, or 20%, and now you're, you're at 1,800 instead of 1,500. And you do that for, you know, from exercise, on, you work out on Monday, and you can elevate it till Wednesday. Then you work on a Wednesday, you can elevate it till Friday. You're essentially trying to move the baseline RMR. Yes. And that's how you create the deficit. Yes. That way you don't run the risk of losing muscle. It's going to take you longer, right? But again, we know that short-term interventions don't work. So, so, so what if it takes you longer? Wouldn't you rather have it work? Yeah. You know, it doesn't work because it's fast. That's why it doesn't work. Right? So why would you keep doing it? Yeah. Except the fact that it's going to be slow. Yeah. And that's what you got to get people to try and understand. They they don't want to do that. A lot of people, a lot, we've had people say to us, look, I don't care where the loss is from muscle or fat. I just want the scale number to be lower. (laughs) How do you, how do you deal with that? You know, how do you, how do you. Maybe. I work with that school with of thought. I do basically it. like I'm ignoring yeah. the science, I'm ignoring the evidence, I'm ignoring my health. I just want to be lighter. When you get somebody like that, you're really talking about a different problem. You know, that's a that's an emotional issue more than yeah. a physical.
1: Issue. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, that that's like that's I think that's one of the biggest problems is just people. Uh, I think a lot of people just need to kind of get out of their way and just like listen to like experts and and just do the work again, like you know, comes back to, they just want the quick result. Yeah. I'm fortunate because, you know, to be honest with you, most people look better when they have muscle versus like, like skinny, like right. that cardio looking body. Of look,
2: like, j- just look at a picture of, look at a picture of an elite marathoner at yeah. 10% fat mm-hmm. and an elite sprinter at 10% fat. Yeah, they're both course. at the same body composition, right? But one of them has a lot more muscle. Mm-hmm. You know, so 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 um, th- certainly people look at that, and and men or women, you know, you look at a sprinter versus a marathoner. Eight out of ten people, I would say, are going to say, "I want to look like the sprinter."
3: Yeah,
1: you're
2: yeah. not going to get that way by doing cardio. No,
3: and 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 it's crazy because um, the like people like, I'll tell them like, yo, weight train like
1: three, four days a week. Okay. And, and then they want to like do more. And I'm like, well, you know, your body needs to recover. It needs to repair. Like you need to make sure you're eating enough. You, like there's so many things that happen outside of just the training aspect, even with like some of the athletes that I deal with. And, and, you know, and they don't even, they don't want to believe me on like, that your body changes when you're like sleeping, when mm-hmm. you're not doing anything, when you're like, right. walking around, like doing normal life things. Right. And like, you're going to That's when you're growing. Exactly. And, um, and it's, it's just, and then, uh, and then kind of going on to the next question, it's like an argument of like having enough protein. And when I talk to people about like their eat, what they eat, and there's like, no protein right, right. and they think they're eating protein. I'm like, yeah, yeah. where <laughs> butter, <laughs> yeah. peanut butter. And, <laughs> um, and it's, it's, uh, and, and then they come back to me and they're like, well, I, I haven't, nothing's done happen. And I'm like, okay, well, what are you, what are you eating? Cause like, you know, I'll have people that will, you know, train two or three days a week and doing things outside of the gym, like maybe doing some running like once or twice a week. But I swear you know, and I had this conversation with um, Stephanie about it. It's like, they just do, and, and you probably see this a lot. They just do the exercise so they can eat whatever they want. hmm <laughs> And I'm like, yeah. well, it, if you're coming to me to lose weight and you're, you, you work out and you, you know, yes, your metabolic rate is going to increase for a few days because you're yeah. your strength training, but you can't just go home and pound the refrigerator. Mm-mm.
2: No, and it, a lot of people think they can, and they, and that's especially true. Um, I, I don't know. I think that seems especially true with aerobic. Ex- I shouldn't say that. I mean, I don't know if people. I don't know if people tend to treat themselves more with cardio than they do with weight training. I don't know. I've just seen so many people do twenty minutes on a treadmill, then walk up to a juice bar and get a 500, 500 calorie recovery shake.
1: And, uh, well, I mean, that's because they're they're looking at the. Uh, either using some type of technology that they're seeing on their watch. Yeah,
2: right. Or the treadmill told them they burned 900 yeah. calories Which or something like that. It's crazy because most yeah. of those treadmills are just as
1: in a, yeah. like incorrect as those that act. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just you put in your weight and it's just using a mechanical, you know, force times distance over time yeah. equation to determine how much work you're doing, right?
3: Yeah,
1: and, so... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of... It's unfortunate because... There's a lot of good inf- information out there and it's put out on a regular basis and people seem to just navigate to these like quick fixes versus this like, you know, sustainable life. Well, it's
2: not sexy. You know, nobody wants to hear of course. portion control, calorie balance, macro distribution. You know, it, you know, paleo is sexy. Keto is sexy. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what people like, you know, because they, they say, well, you're saying I have to do Portion control, and I have to count my calories, and I have to in, incorporate some type of discipline. I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> just tell me what I can and can't eat. Yeah. So, you know, if you say if you go keto, it's simple. Yeah, I just don't eat any carbs and do whatever you want. They're like, all right, I can do that. <laughs> Till they try it, And they
3: realize like it
2: sucks. <laughs> right. So yeah. they realize everything has carbohydrate in it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because you know again uh most people um it's just they're the 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 way they intake protein i think is 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 cuz there's so many people i i feel like that don't intake meat like we used to i think a lot of people are like navi- oh, that's very true. To navigate like away from meat and trying to do these other things to get their protein intake like bars mm-hmm. and you know, I'm not saying and there's. I'm blaming, and you and know, I know like there's nothing really wrong with protein powder, Mm-mm. um, especially you know pre and post workout. But uh, everyone's going to this like vegan, vegetarian like, and and trying to get their proteins from these you know vegan vegetarian sources. options. Yeah, and and they're not realizing that they are so high in carbs versus the protein value. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it I, I see it all the time, and people are like. And they don't realize that they don't see the bioavailability of yeah. the protein versus the carb, you know, and it's, and it's bad because they, they're like, well, I'm not losing weight. I'm like, yeah, what's your, like, where are you getting your protein source?
2: Yeah. And protein is important. You know, a lot of, and it, that's another thing that's confusing because you have the dietetics world who is still on, on board with the RDA, which is what 0.8 grams per kilo of body weight, which the latest review by the um, International Society of Sports Nutrition just came out and said that um, something like protein intakes, I think their words were far in excess of the RDA, lead to favorable improvements in body composition with resistance training individuals. So it's very clear that when you're in a calorie deficit, protein needs go up. Yeah. And when you're resistance training, protein needs go up even further than that. And given the fact that the protein has such a high thermic effect, you know, um, meaning that it speeds the metabolism just by virtue of eating it, uh, it, it, it should be a much, a much more stressed component of a weight management diet than it really is. People sort of look at it as an afterthought. Um, and especially the vegan crowd, because the vegan crowd is always downplaying protein because they know... The most biologically um, highest quality protein comes from animal sources, mm-hmm. and you know most people are vegan for ethical reasons rather than health reasons. So, you know they they tend to, I think they tend to not really appreciate or at least recognize the full spectrum of, of proteins benefits. Yeah, especially in reference to exercise, they just they just downplay it because they don't want people eating it.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's 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 crazy because um, the.
1: I mean, I understand the ethical reasons, but there's just there's just too much research out there now that even says, oh, yeah, I mean that, you know, crop growing versus like an, like yeah. doing something to an animal is nowhere more harmful than where you're you know just constantly making crops. It's all it, but anyway, that's a whole another topic. Um. But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. It's, uh, <sighs> crazy and interesting, um, figuring out ways to, you know, navigate people's, uh, mindset on, you know, how to, you know, sort of want how to bring them to a place where like, you're like, can help them versus... Just shoving this information to their face and saying like yeah. this you have to do, um, right? Kind like you know, figure out ways to have those conversations. I'm sure it's hard. I'm sure you probably go through difficult conversations with people all the time about because they're on some sort of like routine and getting oh,
2: yeah. off of this routine is so hard. Yeah, it's like. Well, it's more the it's more the expectations of the simple things that we have to talk them out of. So, like people, we'll be talking to people and they'll say, will say, walk us through your day and tell us what you eat." Yeah, right? and they'll say something. Well, I know I shouldn't do this, but in the morning I'll eat toast. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. What do you mean? What's, what's what's wrong with toast? All of a sudden, well, it's carbohydrate. I shouldn't be eating carbs. That kind of stuff. You know, people are apologizing for eating bread, and I'm like, wow. What, yeah. Is that what we've come to in this world where people are apologizing for eating bread? You know, so I think bread is the most commonly eaten food in the world. <laughs>
3: well, I mean, Bread is
2: not your problem, right? Yeah. You know, so, so anyway, it's those kinds of things. Of trying to get people to un, unlearn their, their preconceived notions about food because they say it all the time. Well, I know I shouldn't do this or I know I shouldn't, I, I know this is bad. You know, they preface things that they say with some disclaimer, like, like sort of like this presumption Mm -hmm. that that we feel the same way. You know, somebody will say, well, you know, I, 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 I can't help it. I know I shouldn't, but I love chocolate chip cookies. Who doesn't love chocolate chip cookies? Like, why would you apologize for that? Right. You know, the problem isn't eating chocolate chip cookies. The problem is sitting down and eating two sleeves of chips ahoy three times a week. That's a problem. Right. Yeah. So, and that's what people don't understand. You know, they think that in order to be able to lose weight and live at a reasonable, healthy body composition, you have to eliminate all those foods from your diet. Nothing could be further from the truth. And people, you know, part of the reason people are so unsuccessful is because they, they restrict those things. They they put such impossible um, expectations on themselves that it's so easy to fall off the wagon and then beat yourself up about it. And you know, you go down that road. So yeah, people just need to give themselves, cut themselves some slack, you know, and, and don't feel bad about eating the foods that you like.
3: Yeah. So, um,
1: kind of like sum this up. Where's, uh, like, what do you, what's the goal with what has been the goal with the Miller method? Obviously, you know the GW is is there, but like I know yeah. you 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 really am, I think it's more I, I'm sure it's more important to you than, <laughs> than GW. But like like what's your what's your guys's goal with it? I I, I put it, probably should have asked Stephanie, but
2: well, look, our goal has always been, and we started this more from an academic um, perspective, okay. n- not so much from a business perspective. Yeah. We were just frustrated, yeah. basically frustrated working in the weight loss industry and hearing the same stories over and over again of, of people. And it, it, one of the more frustrating things about it was people would come to us and say, well, I met with this dietician. Mm-hmm. And like, okay, here we go. <laughs> and, you know, when the dietician is talking about my plate and eating the rainbow and different colors. And, so, and this is somebody who comes here with a genuine problem, can't lose weight, thinks she has potential thyroid problems. And this person is talking to her about my plate. Okay. So, so, those those are the kinds of things that we got we got just sick of hearing, right? And what we want to and things like low carb dieting and all these all these sort of pseudo science fad type diets we really want to change the industry in a way so that people are not so basically so that using metabolism and body composition and food tracking and objective measurements for weight loss becomes the standard of practice rather than this holistic sort of approach. Well, we're going to teach people to listen to their body and this and that, you know, that's, that's all great, but that alone isn't enough. And objective measurements are great, but alone, they're not enough. You really need to blend those two things. You need to have a blending of the science and the objective measurement with a with a, a somewhat of an intuitive holistic approach to eating and exercise and if you can do that correctly the goal there is to end up not with the most effective weight loss program in 6 weeks but what kind of diet and eat or what kind of eating and physical activity strategies can you incorporate that you can do for a lifetime correct right? That's the goal. The goal isn't tied to bringing down your weight or your, the goal is tied to adopting the lifestyle and those other things will come. Yeah. Right. So what are like the lengths of your programs? Well, one thing typically we think that you need about three months with somebody. You really need about three months with somebody to really get things dialed in. But after that, our goal is not to get a client and keep them on the hook for the rest of their life. Our goal is to teach people what they need from a macronutrient and calorie perspective in order to fuel themselves optimally. And that's it. Once they learn how to do that, we don't, they don't need to be a client of ours anymore, right? You know, there's enough people. There's enough people. We have 42% of Americans obese. There's enough people in this world that, you know, we're not going to run out of customers. Unfortunately, yeah, right. So, our goal is not to get somebody and. And I know it sounds counterintuitive to a business. We're not. We're not trying to get somebody and keep them on the hook and provide them because there's not much to provide once somebody knows what their what their physiology needs. They don't really need us much anymore, you know. Well, so, what
3: about,
1: what about like? Yes, they 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 figure out the macro and all that. But are they able to continue working with you if? Sure. And a lot of people, a lot of people program them like a new three months. And and
2: we do do that. We, most of, most of the people that work with us after those three months are over, they still want to continue working with us, even though they're getting success just because of the personal interaction. And, and, um, the, it's really the, the, the support that they get um, from us along the way. Yeah. So, yeah, we do have a really good retention in that in that respect. But we also know that those people, let's say something happened in those people's lives where they couldn't afford to come to us anymore.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We know that they're going to take the skills that we've taught them and they're going to be perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. It's not like somebody is getting a meal plan from us every week and yeah. now they can't afford it and they're like, oh shit, what am I going to do? Yeah. And they just start scarfing down M&Ms because they don't, because they don't have the meal plan, you know? So, you know, that that's the kind of stuff that we hate and that's the kind of stuff we want to avoid um, because we're really trying to, we're, we're teachers, first of all, more than anything. And that's really what we want to do is educate people on these lifestyle strategies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that again, like, and that's, you know, kind of the same mindset I have. I think it's, a lot of it is education and miss, mis being, a lot of people are just misinformed on, um, right. again, you know, getting Media saying this and that, reading this or hearing it from somebody else that heard it from whoever, mm-hmm. uh, and it's uh, it's hard because you know you ha- you 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 hear from a friend and that you know oh that friend had success with it, um, so I'm gonna do what they're doing. So right. <laughs> okay, right? So do
2: what they're doing,
1: right? And but then you realize like. Three four months down the road, sometimes that person is back to you because they realize like that person, you know, is not sustainable. Right. So. Right. And I think that's the goal. I think that should be the goal for all. Like sort.
2: Well, of- we you know we tell we tell everybody one of the things that we always say is look at what you're doing right now. If you can't picture yourself doing that forever, then just stop and do something else because it's not going to work. You know, whatever you're doing, because it's temporary means it's eventually going to, because it's, because it's, if, it's if it's working really, really fast and, and you're thinking to yourself, there's no way I could keep this up,
3: mm-hmm.
2: then stop. Yeah. Because as soon as you stop, it's all going to come back. Yeah. Because you don't have a plan in place for when it's over, yeah. right? And if you don't have a plan, in pl- the, the thing is, the idea is not to put in a plan that's going to change at some point. The idea is to put in the right plan to begin with and then your body composition will eventually catch up to where it's supposed to be. It's not like the plan to get you to a point, and then that plan changes. I mean, yeah, you make make adjustments along the way if your metabolism goes up or down and things like that. But for the most part, once you you've found hey, this is what I need from a calorie and macro distribution perspective, you just stay there. Yeah. Cool.
1: Well, I will. Uh, I'll put all your contact info, uh, you know, in the show notes and stuff like that. Um awesome. And then obviously. You know hopefully the lab opens
3: yeah <laughs> So, can come totally.
1: again um but um man i really appreciate it a lot hey, of my good, pleasure good um, information I, I mean i could talk to you forever um uh, about this stuff um, yeah
2: i know well i gosh. can talk about it forever <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh i don't want to take a lot of your time but thanks again i appreciate it and all uh, right buddy I'll talk to you soon Kyle. okay thank you see you julian
0: Thanks for listening to Train to Perform with Julian Sissman. Learn how you can work with Julian in a personal training session, either online or in person, at prepareforperformance.com. And follow on social media for more tips on training, fitness, and sports performance on Twitter at jsissman underscore PFP and Instagram at prepareforperformance.